Welcome to the... <laughs> no, 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 I can't do that. Let's try another one. Uh, how about this? <laughs> no, no, that won't work either. Let's try this. get on board with that. Let's roll with it. Welcome to the Begin the Begin podcast. My name is Jeff Hillemeyer, and I'm on a mission to find out what makes people tick. Not just anyone, people who are making a profound impact on the world. I want to dig into their origin story and get to the root of why and how they do what they do. I hope you are as inspired coming out of these conversations as I am. Let's get into it. Holy cow, guys, I am blown away by this interview. My guest today is Taylor Branch, a Pulitzer Prize winning author for his book series, America in the King Years. He also wrote a book called The Clinton Tapes, in which he describes the nearly 80 sessions he had with President Bill Clinton during his two terms as president. Taylor is also mentioned in pretty much every Bobby Kennedy book, of which I've read around 10, whereas a 21 year old, he has an encounter with Bobby while he's running for president in 1968. Spoiler alert, Taylor was actually campaigning for Bobby's rival for the Democratic nomination. We talked for over an hour and a half, so I broke this into four episodes. In part one, we focus on his time spent with President Clinton. In part two, we discuss his books on Martin Luther King and the civil rights era, while also diving deep into the philosophy of nonviolence. In part three, we talk about his encounter with Bobby Kennedy. And then in part four, we talk about his book writing process and his favorite books of all time. Each section has amazing stories that you really won't want to miss. And hey, while I've got you, definitely consider subscribing on whatever platform you're listening on. I have a lot of great guests lined up that, trust me, you won't want to miss. Okay, let's get into it. Now, let's hear part three of my interview with Taylor Branch. Uh, the real reason I was excited to talk to you, even though I was super excited to talk about the books that you've written, is that I am a uh, a big Bobby Kennedy fan. I've read half a dozen books on Bobby, and you're pretty much in all of those books. And, <laughs> and it seems to me, and, and sometimes they mention your name and sometimes not, it's crazy to me that 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 was such a pivotal, I mean, it's a pivotal thing they write about. Yeah, maybe you haven't read <laughs> about Bobby because I know you were for Eugene McCarthy, but let, let me ask you this. Um, you did support, you were, you were a fan of Eugene McCarthy for the Dem- Democratic ticket in 1968 and not Bobby. Um, can you t- talk about that just for, for a moment? I've, I've talked to others who felt that way, but I'd love to hear why you were for one and not the other. Well, I was for Gene McCarthy just because he came out against the war um, before anyone else did. Yep, really. And part of that was... Um, Um, At the University of North Carolina, one of our um, student gurus was a guy named Al Lowenstein, uh, who traveled around, and he was known as the the world's oldest student activist. Um, And he's the one that he tried desperately. Uh, Al was a gadfly, later became a member of Congress. He's the one that got Bobby Kennedy to go to South Africa uh, and arrange that trip. And, yeah. and, and desperately tried to get Kennedy to run. And I knew Al was trying to do that. Uh, we had friends uh, and Kennedy wouldn't do it. And so when he got McCarthy to run, 
uh, we knew how he got McCarthy to run. So uh, he was the first. It took a lot of guts to, to uh, come out against an incumbent uh, president in your own party. Um, so uh, I had a measure of loyalty to McCarthy, but, but I knew that Al had gone to, to Bobby Kennedy first. And um, I don't know what I would have done had Kennedy uh, lived because I certainly knew that McCarthy had major flaws as a um, as a candidate, uh, that that he was too much of a poet and and that he didn't really want to be president uh, and that sort of thing. He just had trenchant criticisms of the war and was willing to make himself a sacrificial uh, lamb and and campaign uh uh, for that. Um, Bobby Kennedy in our all night discussion went through all of McCarthy's faults w- without. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's pause for a second. So I want to tell that story. So um, you were in Indiana, Indianapolis. At Indianapolis. The yes. And you were 20, how, were you 21? How old were you? I was 21. And you, you're, you're there. It's, I think it's late at night. Is that correct? And you're with. I'm a, still a senior at Chapel Hill. But through that spring, I had been going away on weekends to work in primaries for McCarthy to try to end the war. Uh, and I went up to the Indiana primary and um, they, they assigned me to go into the black neighborhoods and canvas for McCarthy, which was really rough because they were solidly for Bobby Kennedy. You know, there were places where you'd go in and you'd see the, that um, iconic photograph of, of Jesus, um, of Lincoln, John Kennedy, <laughs> And Martin Luther King, you know. Uh, So uh, I had a hard time, and McCarthy lost the primary. It was the first head-to-head. Bobby Kennedy beat him. And I left uh, somewhat dejected um, and uh, went to the airport to catch my flight. And I missed my flight because we had all kind of political stuff going. And I was flying back home to Atlanta to take my draft physical. Um, so I was facing a personal crisis because I had, uh, t- uh, I had already committed to my family that I was going to resist the draft if, if I passed, um, if I was inducted. Uh, so I was all over the place uh, and sitting on my suitcase and somebody tapped me on the shoulder. I turned around and it was Bobby Kennedy. I mean, <laughs> as close to me as I am to your screen saying, excuse me, I see you have a McCarthy staff badge on. Uh, will you have breakfast with me? And it was it was midnight um, and the, everything was closed up. But miraculously, because of Kennedy sway or something, some of his aides went and they opened up the breakfast house right there in the in the um, airport. And another student who was sitting there with me, uh, uh, another McCarthy student and I went in to this booth. It was a breakfast booth, just like in the opening scene of Pulp Fiction. We were there at this at this booth and um, he was on one side and and uh, um, the lady and I were on the other side and we argued until four in the morning. Uh, why did you, why do you support Gene McCarthy? What do you see in him? Why can't he go into black neighborhoods? Uh, what kind of president, what do you have against me? Uh, well, Senator, you didn't get into the race in, in time. You only got in when it looked like you could win. And he said, well, why would I get in if I didn't think I could win? Uh, I got in when I, you know, we think you're only using your name. He said, I can't help my name. My name's Kennedy. All I can help is what I do with it. And I was, as he said, I was as for this, I was as much for this war as anybody else uh, when it began. And I take responsibility for that. And partly for that reason, I want to do everything I can to end it. 
because, you know, I've, and he said, I've gone through the same kind of uh, shift in my life on race relations. You know, I did some bad things to the Freedom Riders and stuff like that, but I, that's how I got to know John Lewis, who's supporting me now. Anyway, it was, it was an incredible conversation um, that went all night. Um, there were maybe a dozen reporters standing around us, um, like Jimmy Breslin. Some of them some of them wrote about it, which is how it started working its way into books. You know, the day, because Bobby Kennedy at one point said, you know, you guys, are, you two are obviously A students. I want to know why McCarthy gets the A students and I'm getting all the gentlemen C frat boys. He said, <laughs> I, I want to get some of the higher qualities. <laughs> so it was just so, um, and of course I was awed in part by a lot of things, his eyes, he had the bluest eyes and he was very, very intense. But the fact that he had almost killed himself running in this, you know, nonstop. And instead of going out and getting drunk or going home and going to sleep or, mm -hmm. or whatever, an exhaustion, because he'd done all these national interviews. I mean, we had watched some of them just not an hour before we'd seen him talking on TV and, and then instead of doing any of that, he comes and stays up all night with two college kids. Yeah. Um, so I, um, every now and then in the ensuing, you know, I never forgot it. It made a very, very deep impression on me. Um, you know, and then this, this meeting in the airport occurred, I think, May 7th or 8th, literally halfway between the assassination of Martin Luther King, he had been killed a month earlier and Kennedy's own assassination a month later. Uh, so that's, you know, people say 2020 is an amazing year. 68 was an amazing year too. Um, and, uh, you know, I went on later that year to become with Julian Bond, a member of the Georgia delegation that challenged Lester Maddox in Chicago uh, at, the, at the Democratic Convention. Uh, so the adventures uh, kept going, but um, I never lost my awe over over that that time with Bobby Kennedy. I, I tried uh, over the years a few times to track down and locate Pat Sylvester, uh, the woman who was there. We, we were just two students. We hadn't known each other, never saw each other before or since. But I remembered her name and uh, I, that she went to Pembroke. She said she went to Pembroke or Brown. And I called Brown and the Alumni Association trying to track her down. But um, in recent years, uh, at least one reporter is more obsessed by this story than I am. And he did track uh, not her down. She has died, but her daughter, who had letters about this, uh, this encounter uh, that, that, he, that he quoted uh, in an article. And and you you two, I, I think as the legend goes, crafted a, a like after he left and went to his hotel, you crafted a, a letter and you guys stuck it under his door. Yep, rehashing everything that we had said over the four hours, as though that was going to make it any different. All he cared about, well, was what he could learn. It, it wasn't a yeah. total loss for him. I think he learned a lot about how young uh, students were thinking. Um, his campaign was just picking up momentum, and I think I'm, I, I hope in a way that he would have put it to good use had he lived. But we rehashed all the things and, and how much we respected him and how hard a choice it was for us to stick with McCarthy, but we felt that we needed to be loyal to him uh, for, for now, and we wrote this thing all out on a legal pad, I think. And then security was so slack in those days, 
You wonder how he was killed a month, <laughs> a month later. The, yeah. He was in an airport motel and we walked over and we knew what room he was in and we slid <laughs> it under the door. Um, um, I mean, we didn't wake him up or anything. It was, gosh, it was probably 5.30 in the morning. Um, but anyway, yes, it was an unforgettable experience. Here's a silly question. No part of you asked for his autograph? No. No, you were never, you were never going to no. do that or, or would have been too embarrassing. It didn't occur to me. Okay. We were too deep. You know, <laughs> what I was talking about before, uh, about how the 60s were a time when people grappled with fundamental things. Um, part of what awed us, other than the fact that he was doing this with us and that he was a presidential candidate, was, was how deep and substantial and non-superficial and, and you know, just how honest he was and confrontational about things that really mattered, how to end the war and, and what to do. Um, he got very upset when I told him that I was going to take my draft physical and I didn't know what I would do uh, if, if I was inducted. He said, well, you have to fight for your country. And, and, and I said, Senator, I don't believe that this is a, this is a democratically uh, enacted war. We've never declared war. The president drafts people and sends them over there. Uh, uh, and I'm like Muhammad Ali. I don't have anything against the the, um, the the Viet Cong, but I'm not sure that I have the nerve to do anything about it. And uh, and, and and he paid attention to that, but his instinctive reaction was, um, you know, it was <laughs> it was like during the Freedom Rides when he was still kind of the hardcore Cold Warrior, uh, and he met John Lewis, and he told John Lewis, John. John do you realize that one of the freedom riders we're told does not believe in the atomic bomb? <laughs> he was so shocked. Um, uh, you know, Bobby was a, a tactile character. He learned by confronting things and he would yes. feel bad and his emotions and he grew that way. Whereas uh, his brother, President Kennedy was much more cerebral and above things, and he deflected things, and and he didn't really learn uh, the way Bobby did. Ultimately, I think uh, Bobby was much the greater figure. Yeah, I feel the same way. Not many people, not many people feel that. Um, and I don't know. You probably haven't read it, but um, Bobby Kennedy: The Making of a Liberal Icon um, by Larry Tai. I believe you're in that one, and and it's the one that really showed me the evolution that he went through and just how much he cared and was really, to your point, trying to learn and he'd go into areas and experience things and and come out of it. So I'm curious, um, do you think he would have won? I mean, he won California and then he was assassinated. It seemed like he had tremendous momentum um, at that point. Um, do, Do you think he would have won? And then maybe for a moment we can dream about what our country would have been if Bobby Kennedy Kennedy had been president instead of Nixon. <laughs> well, it, it's 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 hard to say. You know, I was at the um, Democratic convention two months later uh, at the end of another amazing story with Julian Bond, and we were seated miraculously. Um, and you saw the feeling there against the war, and how upset people were when the when the anti-Vietnam plank was defeated um, by like. Uh, I think three, 300 votes, something like that. Um, um, but there was tremendous passion uh, about that. Had that been Bobby Kennedy's convention, um, I, I, there would have been um, uh, a tremendous amount of, uh, of emotion for ending the war. And I think he, he would have had a lot of momentum into the election. 
Um, on the other hand, um, you can never underestimate the forces of, uh, of reaction. The, the war was still popular. Uh, there were a lot of people, you know, one of the things that Dr. King said that is least remembered is that he said, I never have called Lyndon Johnson's name in any criticism I have made of the war against Vietnam. This is our war. Yep. The people are for this war. I'm not going to try to blame it on Lyndon Johnson. Um, uh, we're, we're a government of the people, and I'm trying to persuade the people that, that, that we need to choose a better path. Um, Bobby Kennedy would have had... Uh, there may have been violence later instead of sooner. You know, yeah. I, I just don't know. It was a tumultuous period. There, there was no miracle cure for it. Yeah, I'll I'll end with this. Um, I did. I, you, you talked about John Lewis being for Bobby. Um, you know, soon after Martin Luther King was assassinated, um, John Lewis is sort of famous for saying, "You know, at least we still have Bobby." And then, you know, a couple months later, so just I think, like you said, like I look back at 1968 as like you just heard part three of my interview with Pulitzer Prize winning author Taylor Branch. If you missed them, consider going back to hear part one and part two as we get into his experiences with President Bill Clinton and his writings of Dr. King in the civil rights era. And be on the lookout for the final installment of this series when I discuss with Taylor his writing process and his favorite books of all time. Wow, you made it to the end of the podcast. I didn't think people did that anymore. Well, since I still have you, I'd love for you to do two things. First, subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. That way you'll be alerted as soon as I post my next one. And second, I'd love for you to subscribe to my email newsletter. I send out an email every week or two, and it's really where I share my more personal thoughts and ideas. Plus, I give stuff away sometimes. You can find the sign up at my blog, jeffhillemeyer.com, and I really do appreciate you listening. <laughs>